Good evening, folks, and welcome back on this Saturday, the 17th day of June, 2023. I'm your host, Mark Hall, and there's only one way to begin tonight, because this was the week in which it became undeniable that the United States, even though it's been fairly clear for a while, is, without doubt, a banana republic. Because we're now well past the point where anybody, even the far left, can fail to see it, at least fail to see it honestly. History may reflect that the official end came at 3 p.m. on Tuesday in Miami, Florida, when the actually elected president appeared before what now passes for a judge and what now passes for a court to plead not guilty to over 30 bogus charges that were so asinine they'd be funny if they weren't representative of the literal death of the old republic. Possession of documents that he had every constitutional and statutory authority as outgoing president to declassify and possess, and everybody knows it. But really, folks, at least it's not like he put them on a pay-to-play server and then later managed to get some criminal assistance of the American Gestapo to cover up or anything, is it? I don't want to spend a lot of time on this up front today. I'm sure the waste media will obsess and lie about it for weeks, if not months on end, until they've done the dirty deed. But here's at least one example of a bit of counterpoint. It does come from the Daily Mail, so take it with a grain of salt. It'd be just laughable if it weren't so serious, said top Republican Mike Waltz about Trump's so-called federal indictment. He called it a devastating erosion of trust, and that's putting it mildly, after Hitler, as you may recall, but probably won't be reminded by the waste stream, got away with literal reason and destroyed her emails that were on a private outside government server which is at least a thousand times bigger than any crime trump's even accused of here because among other obvious things it was readily accessed by foreign entities in exchange for well you're never going to know what because the records have been destroyed the fbi helped her get away with it and even the disk drives were not only bleach pitted but smashed into non-existence afterwards Treason, espionage, bribery, and an FBI-aided cover-up, all in one. How's that for a real crime that goes, uh, well, unindicted? Remember the whoremeister himself, James Comey, said famously, no prosecutor would dare touch her. He didn't say why, I will, because they know what would happen to them. And she never was president, even though her team thinks she should have been. But in Banana Republic land, Trump was arraigned on his 37-count indictment Tuesday. And there's literally nobody with half a brain that can't see what this is. A Soviet-style political takedown, and yes, it's also election rigging, a priori of the singular primary threat, no doubt about it, even if you don't like the guy, on the white whorehouse enemies list. And once they get rid of Trump, they can probably Bobby Kennedy, his son, the same way they did his dad, who was also running for president, but probably wasn't nearly as much of a threat to the deep state. Florida Congressman Walsh noted there's a huge difference between how the Department of Just Us, and guess what, folks, you ain't part of us, is treating Trump versus how they handled Hitlery over those 30,000 missing emails. No charges were brought against her for a single one of those, and a whole lot of them really were highly classified, for real. And the current so-called investigation by special counsel Rob Herr into the Biden Fuhrer's classified documents found that the Penn Biden Center and in his garage and in so many other places have, oh, surprisingly, simply disappeared off the waste stream media radar. VPs don't have declassification authority either. 
said, Walt, so many of his followers, so many of my constituents, and not just Republicans, but people across the board from the political sphere, are saying this is hypocrisy. Do you think? This is two-tier justice. The erosion of trust, he said correctly, and yes, it's an understatement, is just devastating. Yeah, he noted, as everybody with half a brain has seen for years now, if the DOJ can do this to a real president, including Trump, quote, they can do this to any American. Gee, and guess what, folks? They have been, and they are. And he noted, hey, remember when former president, the rapist himself, Bill Clinton's national security advisor, Sandy Berger, broke into the National Archives and stuffed a lot of actually real classified documents into his underwear and socks before destroying them behind a dumpster? Oh, yeah. What happened to him? Well, basically, nothing. But like all of the Clinton crime family, at least, and the deep state O'Biden regime ever since, he was above the law. And you know what else was at least a potential story up until the day that Trump got indicted and it completely fell off the radar? Comey and the crooked FBI in contempt of Congress for failing to hand over the FD-1023 form that showed then-Vice President Biden, the big guy, doing what we all know he became famous for, taking yet another bribe, this one five million bucks, from a Ukrainian individual whose name is still being redacted in exchange for, guess what? little bit of help from our friends. Said Waltz, if this is all malarkey, like Biden claims it is, there should be no problem with transparency. Unquote. And since the big guy can't even seem to stand up in front of a teleprompter long enough to read it correctly anymore, Jill Biden, chief damage controller and diaper handler, came out swinging, said another piece from the Daily Mail at Donald Trump Monday evening, even as the CCP's puppet has refused comment on the uh, so-called criminal case against the guy who actually won the election. But in her first solo campaign event, they say, since Biden's puppeteers announced that he would begin to run again for the White House, Jill didn't hold back. And she criticized Trump supporters for backing him in spite of his federal indictment. Quote, they don't care about the indictment. That's a little shocking, I think, she said. <laughs> Why? Because it's bogus? Because it's idiotic? They don't care that your husband is a senile bribe taken fake for crying out loud. Who are you to talk? Because even the smaller bribes that your big guy crime lord husband took made anything this guy did look trivial by comparison? Let me say it again. This, folks, is what a banana republic really looks like. Now listen to this. This is the last thing I'm going to read from the Daily Mail coverage of this bunch of BS. The first lady, sick, says the piece, is on a mission to persuade big leftist donors who've expressed skepticism that at age 80, Joe Biden has the strength and stamina for a second term. And that, just like the Biden Fuhrer himself, is a diaper load full of hooey. They know what we know. The guy has been senile since before he was ever even injected into the Oval Orifice. Well, it's so bad even his body devils can't find their way off stage. And yeah, how's this? It's so bad he can even say he honestly doesn't even remember who's bribed him by now. But wait, there's just a bit more. This is a piece from Zero Hedge and Tyler Durden. The headline says this is crazy, and it's about how Trump has raged after the so-called indictment was unsealed. Quote, this is the man, he said, who caused the lowest learner catastrophe with the IRS, wrote Trump. Referring to the deep state U.N. guy, special counsel Jack Smith himself, quote, he went after evangelicals and great Americans of faith. His wife is a Trump hater, just as he is a Trump hater, a deranged psycho that shouldn't be involved in any case having to do with justice, other than to look at Biden as a criminal, which he is, unquote. All of that's true, folks, well documented. You just don't expect to hear it from the waste stream. 
This is crazy, continued Trump, under the Presidential Records Act. And by the way, folks, he's absolutely correct. I'm allowed to do this. It's even consistent with the Constitution, but I don't think Donald Trump is quite as familiar with that document. Anyway, he said under the Clinton Sox case, the decision is clear, there was no crime. Well, remember, folks, it's a crime if a Republican does it. It's not a crime if a deep state leftist does it. Anyway, there was no crime, wrote the president, except for what the DOJ and FBI have been doing against me for years. Biden moved his boxes all over the place, including to Chinatown and his lawyer's office in Boston. So why isn't deranged Jack Smith looking at that, unquote? And we know the answer. So does he. I can't help but hearken back, though, to the fact that he was going to, remember this, lock her up and never did. I guess it came back to bite him. But here's the reason why I'm actually doing the piece. It's not about what Trump said. It's about what the rhino that poses as speaker for the traitors, Kevin McCarthy, said, calling the indictment, get this, a dark day for the country in a tweet last Thursday. And it's not that that statement is wrong, folks. It's absolutely correct. It's just that the hypocrisy kind of leaps off the page at you. Quote, it's unconscionable for a president to indict the leading candidate opposing him. Well, yeah, that's actually true. Joe Biden kept classified documents for decades, wrote McCarthy, and added, I and every American who believes in the rule of law stand with President Trump against this grave injustice. Now, listen to this, folks, and uh, try not to throw up on your shoes. House Republicans will hold this brazen weaponization of power accountable, unquote, and give me a break. What a stinking liar. He's going to hold the deep state accountable for a brazen abuse of power? Well, be still my heart and show me a little bit of action. Well, show me something, because we've seen all kinds of treason. We've seen cover-ups. We've seen absolute criminality. We've seen sellouts to foreign powers. We've seen the complete destruction of a once-free republic. But the one thing we haven't seen is anything remotely approaching the guilty being held actually accountable. What we've got instead is a banana republic. And if we can't admit at least that, folks, we ain't never coming back from this abyss. From the obscene, let's go briefly to the insane. I guess it's also obscene, and it's ridiculous to boot, but here we go. But not one, but two different leftist headlines. First from Newsweek, hey, there's a reliable source. A topless trans woman at the big, biggest ever, as a matter of fact, White House Pride event has sparked outrage. The Daily Mail, with pictures, says the Biden LGBT Pride Party guest who goes topless in the White House garden. A transgender model, it says, bared her breasts, yeah, sure, on the South Lawn after posing for snaps with the fake president and the first diaper changer. Rose Montoya, they say, transgender model and actress, sick, was among hundreds invited to celebrate Pride Month at the White Whorehouse. Said the imposters to the crowd, you're beautiful, you're heard, you belong. The fake president called them some of the bravest and most inspiring people. And Montoya then bared, and no folks, this is not what the leftist coverage says, it's breast. And a person filming the whole thing said, are we topless at the White House? No, you're just disgusting, shameless, and yeah, revealed for whatever it is that you actually are. (laughs) If you're not mad, folks, you're just not paying attention. But here's the kicker. It was a stinking dude pretending to be a woman that bared his fake breasts. And I guess where else but at the fake White House with the fake president and the arguably even fake lawn. Well, that may be as close as we get to humor for a minute because I've been working up to this story. 
And this one, honestly, folks, is no longer even a warning shot or a sign of the times. It's a heat-seeking missile fired mid-torso. This version comes from Zero Hedge about a California bill, it says, that would punish actual parents, you know, the kind where there's a mama and a papa, for misgendering. That's their disgusting term children. And as is so often the case when it comes to absolute abominations, this is a proposed amendment to a California bill already in progress that would brand parents who refuse to ahem, affirm their child's gender as abusive, and therefore that would allow the almighty state to take them away and show them just who the real parents are. I'm going to skip over the rap sheets of the so-called legislators, actually perps here, and cut to the chase. This abomination called, appropriately, AB 957, amends the state's family code. What a disgusting misnomer to address the, quote, health, safety, and welfare of the child in every household, whether the parents like it or not. As the Daily Mail notes, if passed, the law could, and no doubt about it, folks, would result in children being removed from their actual parents' home if family members are deemed by the almighty tyrannical state to be, quote, anti-LGBTQ+. And they'll feel free to add more letters to that as the perversions continue to multiply. The bill was originally passed on on May 3rd, amended June 3rd by Wiener, where it will now need to pass again, and no doubt about it, folks, we're talking California here, so you know what's going to happen, with revisions. Under the so-called code, courts are given complete authority to remove children from their actual homes if their uh, parents, or at least the people that thought they were the parents, refuse to affirm whatever the almighty state says their gender really is. And it would require schools, churches, and other organizations And you know what that means, and if you don't, be real careful, anything the almighty state recognizes, to follow suit, or they too would face repercussions for, get this, quote, impacting the health, safety, and welfare of a child. Ah, destroying their immune system, taking them from their families, cutting off their genitalia, or injecting them with all kinds of state-approved drugs, of course, doesn't count. Now, at this point, I'll admit it again. I'm going to take a deep breath, and I need to ask a serious question to those people who are still in the communist, tyrannical People's Republic of California at this point. Because, really, inquiring minds want to know. Are you crazy? Or just plain stupid? Now, let me pause here, because obviously that was rhetorical, but only partly tongue-in-cheek. I understand people saying, hey, this is my home, I grew up here, I own property here, I don't want to leave, and I certainly understand all of that. And besides, who'd want to come in and buy a house there anyway? The only options to sell it to would be either people who don't want or can't have kids or are already utterly insane. I guess the question is, would you defend your property against someone who wanted to steal it from you by force? Well, hey, if you won't defend your property, how about if somebody wants to come and abuse, kidnap, or outright kill your kids? Are you finally going to do something about it? Or are you just going to sit there and let them take your kids along with your property? I guess what bugs me today and why I'm spending the time on this is it's one thing to talk about insanity. We've certainly seen it galloping for quite a while now. But it's another thing to realize that it's a cancer that's not only metastasized, But it's literally killing an entire civilization. It's a horrifying bill for children, for parents, and for guardians, not just in California, but across the country, said one analyst, obviously speaking for everybody who's read the damnable thing. The traitorous Satanist Lori Wilson's office said that the bill only applies to family law and not to criminal law. And think about that for just a second, too. 
Because i got to ask it. Let's just come right out here and make sure we put the important questions on the table. If somebody doesn't want their kids gang raped or their genitalia cut off, and they decide, hey, you know what? Anybody comes to my door and tries to take my kids by force, I'm going to blow them away. Has it now passed the line into uh, criminal law? And you got to ask this question, too. Who's the real criminal here, and who actually deserves to be met with deadly force? And even the Daily Mail noted this, the language of the revisions and how they would be enforced is vague and ambiguous. Used to be there was a thing in the law, when we had real law folks, called void for vagueness. Doesn't specify the ages of the youth to be violated, or even affirming what their so-called gender means, for crying out loud. It just gives judges the latitude to punish the parents if they're not PC enough. So I'll say it again, folks. I think we're way past the time when people that have half a brain need to take off the gloves and recognize what they're up against. To call this bullshit, and I have to use that term explicitly, is a gross understatement. And so, unfortunately, is even calling it satanic. There is a bit more out today on one of the many stories you're not supposed to hear. You're certainly not supposed to pay any attention to them. Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa on Monday dropped yet another bombshell. You just didn't hear it go off. In the recent spate of Biden corruption headlines, well... On page B37, at least, that the foreign national who allegedly bribed then-Vice President Big Guy Joe Biden kept no less than 17 secret recordings of both Hunter and the Big Guy Daddy Joe Biden as a so-called insurance policy. The Washington Examiner has the story that the foreign national is, in fact, Burisma owner Mikola Zlochevsky. And said the senator, the 1023 form that was finally produced, although you still haven't seen it, folks, and they weren't allowed to actually have it, just look at it, to that House committee redacted references to the foreign national who allegedly bribed the Biden crime family and who now, we know, allegedly has audio recordings of his conversations with both of them, 17 in total, said Grassley during a speech on the Senate floor. Those recordings were allegedly kept as an insurance policy for the foreign national just in case he ever got into a tight spot. I guess it's not only helpful to have friends in high places, you better have something on them. And if there's anything that the United States government should have actually proven to the American people's satisfaction by now, it's that. The 1023 also, said the senator, indicates that then-Vice President Joe Biden may have been involved in Burisma employing son Hunter. And more than that, he added, the FBI made Congress review a redacted, unclassified document in a classified facility, which shows you just how deep the corruption and disrespect that the FBI goes when it comes to Congress. And you know what, folks? On this score, at least, I can't blame them, because what the hell has Congress ever done to show them who's really boss? So, most recently, what we now know is that the FBI got away with it again, and they covered up the claim that the Burisma owner, the guy who at least had a pretty good share of ownership in the big guy, had secret recordings between he and the Biden crime family as an insurance policy. And the FBI didn't want you to know that, especially not before an election that they intended to help rig. Now, at this point, I am going to digress for just a second. You'll see why it's relevant to a related piece from the Free Thought Project about the criminal FBI itself. Some of this we knew, perhaps just not the incredible extent of it. 
A FISA surveillance court opinion released late last week revealed that America's Stasi, the federal bunglers of investigation, violated, who could have thought such a thing would be possible, the constitutional rights of at least 278,000 Americans. Hey, some of us think it's closer to 278 million, but at least they're admitting a tenth of one percent of them. In 2020 and 2021 alone, with various warrantless searches of their email and other electronic data. But wait for it. For each American, the piece notes that the FISA court permitted the FBI to target unlawfully, unconstitutionally, and the hell with your God-given rights. The FBI illicitly surveilled almost a thousand additional Americans. And there you go. That's the latest federal surveillance scandal stretching back to the years after the uh, 9-11 false flag. Here they proceed to give some history. Regular listeners undoubtedly know most of that. In the name of protecting you, they did what? Gang rape the rest of your rights that they hadn't already taken away. That's the bottom line capsule synopsis. But here's the part that's buried deep down in this thing that I think is really fascinating and certainly bears paying attention to, especially on Banana Republic Day. You hopefully recall that back in 2013, during the first Obama regime, Ed Snowden blew the roof off of the surveillance state with a number of disclosures pointing out that, yeah, what was a conspiracy theory had really been a fact all along. And for that, the intelligence community wanted him dead. And ironically, he had to escape to Russia to survive. Snowden also leaked secret court rulings that proved that the FISA court had created, quote, a secret body of law, or what now passes for it, yeah, giving the National Security Agency the power to amass vast collections of data on actual Americans. Obviously, Snowden's courageous disclosures didn't stop the outrages, and the latest disclosure from the FISA court signals that the FBI presumed, and listen carefully to this, folks, that any actual Americans suspected of even supporting the January 6th, 2020 protests about the rigging and theft of an election forfeited his or her constitutionally protected rights. Well, hey, they hadn't been really protected for years, as we now know. But this still manages to go yet another step beyond. The story then reminds us that roughly 2,000 protesters, including an unknown number of undercover agents, CHSs, and various informants, entered the Capitol that day. Many of them, of course, at the invitation of Capitol Police and the guards at the building. But a so-called FBI analyst exploited FISA to unjustifiably conduct searches on 23,132 Americans to, quote, find evidence of possible foreign influence. Although the analyst conducting the inquiries had no indications of any such so-called foreign influence. Remember, folks, they can't see foreign influence when it's bribing their bosses. This, according to FISA Chief Judge Rudolph Contreras. Although the court ruling did not disclose, I don't think they even knew, what so-called standards, if any, the FBI was using for their claims of warrantless January 6 searches. But wait, there's more. The FBI exploited FISA to target 19,000 donors to the campaign of a candidate who even challenged an incumbent member of Congress. And as your host, hey, one of those that was no doubt supposed to win. And here's the part that ought to really infuriate real Americans. The FBI analysts justified the warrantless anti-constitutional searches by claiming, quote, the campaign was a target of foreign influence, unquote. And ponder the irony, folks, since they have installed a fake president who is literally a puppet of not just foreign influence, but bought and paid for. And the real foreign influence, no doubt about it, is what they're covering up. So back to Chuck Grassley and the story, which did at least appear in places like The Examiner. 
which said that sources previously had told them that the Burisma owner discussed an alleged bribe of $5 million bucks to the big guy, Joe Biden, and of $5 million also to Hunter Biden, according to the paid FBI informant who said he'd heard this from Zlochevsky himself, who thought it might take 10 years to unravel the bribery scam because they made it so complex. And get this, folks, Zlochevsky's alleged reference to Joe Biden as the big guy appears to be independent of other references to the fake president also as the big guy. In other words, there's a second witness here, which was originally covered by a Hunter Biden business associate during negotiations with Chinese intelligence-linked businesses. And that China-related reference, as opposed to the Ukraine-related reference, occurred in 2017 and an email that was made public in October of 2020, three full years later. Not too long before the election, and that helps explain why that, too, had to be covered up by your friendly neighborhood and, yes, treasonous FBI. Also on Monday concludes the Zero Hedge Summary. House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer of Kentucky subpoenaed Hunter Biden's former business partner, Devin Archer, demanding that he sit for a deposition and uh, arguably a little bit of test line. Yeah, you be the judge, according to CBS News. So I'll wrap up the segment the way I began. Welcome to the Banana Republic, and we'll be right back. We're killing our babies before they are born. Stand up and be kind and come and sound the alarm. Are you one of God's children, but nothing but the devil's Welcome back now to the second segment for this evening. I'm your host, Mark Hall. And with the continuing sagas of World War III, economic meltdown, and civil war all still front and center and all on the immediate horizon, you might think we'd need to start off this segment with one of those. But sadly, there's a senile puppet on center stage, too, and he keeps managing to put his foot in his mouth, and the waste stream has to keep doing contortions to keep from reporting it. Because it does tend to emphasize how the rule of law's been gutted. Well, at least it's funny, so let's go ahead and get the latest Biden blunder out of the way, because it does kind of, in a backhanded way, introduce some of the other things we need to talk about next. Build Back Biden, says the Daily Mail's headline. What do you bet we're going to hear that again? The senile imposter gets tongue-tied as he battles again with the teleprompter during a speech in the District of Criminal Swamp. And, oh, here's the excuse. It was after he had a root canal done, as if this time, maybe, that was actually true. Or as if that makes any difference. But as is usually the case, and since it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever, let's just go ahead and hear it. We're paying farmers to plant carbon-absorbing plants. We're paying farmers to put more in conservation. We've mobilized the world's leading emitters to help poor countries deal with the impacts of climate change. They called it the G7, the Build Back Biden, Build Back Better. And we realized that got confusing. So now we don't call it that. What we call it is, here's the bottom line. Look, we're the ones that caused the problem. We call it what? Uh, the bottom line? Yeah, we're the ones that caused the problem? 
No, he's not talking about the United States, folks. He didn't read it right. It's the Biden regime, and they're continuing to cause problems, and the goal is the destruction of the United States first and then the rest of the world. But I do want to spend just a second or two talking about an aspect or two of this uh, stream of consciousness blathering. Because as we saw in this particular example, sometimes the truth does slip out there. Like that first sentence. We're paying farmers to plant carbon absorbing plants. Now, wait a minute. If you weren't dumbed down in the public cesspools, you might remember that the process is called photosynthesis. And it's how plants take carbon dioxide and add other things that growing plants need and create food. Sugars, other things that uh, humans, animals, and just about everything else on the planet needs to continue the process of life. And so what? The United States is paying farmers to plant things that do what plants do? How's that for brilliance? Still, though, this is the soundbite to remember. Let's hear it again. They called it the G7, the Build Back Biden. And here's the thing to remember. Build back better is the old communist slogan. That's what they intend to do. And it really means don't build back at all. But whatever it is that replaces what once worked is going to be a fully collectivized communist totalitarian system. And now we have Build Back Biden, which is clearly pretty much the same thing, only just a hell of a lot more destructive. From there, I want to go into some depth today on a couple of stories that I think really outline where we are and what the situation is and what we need to be not only aware of but concerned about and taking the appropriate actions to deal with. I'll start with this one, courtesy of Charles Hugh Smith and his blog of Two Minds. And he asked this question, what happens? And by the way, Ayn Rand, you may recall, asked the very same question. Interestingly, I don't see Charles Hugh Smith make the obvious reference here to her masterpiece, Atlas Shrugged, which describes exactly what happens, though, as he asks in the question that headlines this piece, what happens when the competent opt out? What happens when the uh, people who know how to run things, do things, build things, retire, burn out, or simply opt out? It's a question he says few, other than perhaps Ayn Rand notably, bother to ask because the base assumption is that there's essentially a limitless supply of competent people who can be tapped or trained or even coerced to replace those who retire, burn out, opt out, or I guess nowadays we'd have to add, are killed by a system that wants lots of people dead anyway. Trouble is, those assumptions are no longer valid. A great many essential services that are, in fact, tightly bound to other essential services are cracking up as the competent decide, or maybe they just realize, that they need to get the heck out of Dodge. And they're done, not only with the rat race, but the idiocy and, yes, the satanic self-destruction that goes along with it. The drivers of the competent opting out, says Charles Hugh Smith, are obvious, yet they're difficult to quantify. Those retiring, burning out, or opting out will deny that they're leaving for precisely those reasons because it's really not politic to be quite so honest or direct. They'll offer the usual time-honored dodges instead. I want to pursue other opportunities, or there are family obligations, or maybe it's just I've worked hard for my career. Now I deserve something better. But Smith outlines a couple of important rationales behind the decision. Number one, the steady increase in workloads, paperwork, compliance, and, of course, make work, i.e. the work that has nothing to do with actually accomplishing whatever it is that you're supposed to be accomplishing, the mission or objective, in other words, of the organization. And that obviously can lead to burnout. There's only so much we can accomplish, and if we're burdened with ever-increasing demands for paperwork, compliance, useless meetings, and other BS well, then essentially, we no longer have the time or energy to perform the productive work that brought us to do that job in the first place. 
and knows the author. I even wrote a paper entitled Burnout, but once that's happened and you've burned out, you simply can't continue. The option no longer exists. And then there are those, too, that begin to realize the meager rewards that the job once offered simply aren't worth the sacrifices that are now required. And I guess if you think about it, folks, that's especially true if that includes your health, because they want you to take some idiotic poison poke or wear a face diaper or any of the other things coming up real soon that are so obviously self-destructive. Number two on the list is loss of autonomy, control, belonging, rewards, accomplishment, and even fairness. He cites Professor Christina Malash, who pioneered research on the causes of burnout, which can be summarized as any work environment that reduces individual autonomy, control, a sense of belonging and rewards, accomplishment and fairness. And despite a near avalanche now of politically correct BS, corporate happy talk like we're all family, that unfortunately describes an increasing number of workplaces and the ones for the United States. In a word, what's happened is depersonalization. Everyone is a replaceable unit. Hey, you know what they say, right? A human resource, a cog in a wheel. And once we've depreciated you to zero and your useful life is over, there's plenty of others on the shelf just like you, and we can get rid of you and replace you anytime we feel like it, and don't you forget it. Number three, and this is increasingly a real biggie, is the politicization of the work environment. And I can attest personally, folks, this was already becoming intolerable, at least in some companies, when I left the corporate workforce over 15 years ago now. Let's begin, though, says Charles Hugh Smith, by distinguishing between policies that enforce equal opportunity or equal pay, standards and accountability, policies required to fulfill the at least once legal purpose embedded in the nation's social contract, explains the author, with politicization, which has replaced that with demands for allegiance and declarations of loyalty to various political ideologies that have nothing to do with the work being done, much less the standards of accountability necessary for the operation of a complex institution or enterprise. The problem with politicization, says the author, is that it's, number one, intrinsically inauthentic, and number two, it substitutes the ideologically pure, and haven't we seen a lot of that lately, for the competent. Rigid, top-down hierarchies, including not just communist regimes like the one that the United States has now largely become, but also corporations and institutions, which, hey, I guess I'm repeating myself, demand their own versions of uh, oaths of fealty, loyalty oaths. And compliance to what the author calls deological demands. Check the right boxes of party indoctrination, self-criticism, struggle sessions. And oh yeah, especially in this environment, don't forget that you salute the LGBTQIA++ rainbow flag. And maybe even cut off genitalia that you're not really using anyway or you wouldn't be there and that they don't want your kids to have either. The basis for advancement has become the correct verbiage and theological enthusiasm. In other words, enthusiasm for the fake deity that runs the place rather than competence. So he says the competent are thus replaced with the politically savvy or at least the politically malleable. And since competence is no longer being selected for, indeed you're not allowed to hire for that anymore, it's being replaced by what is being selected for, i.e. political compliance. Spinelessness, two-facedness, fork-tonguedness, you've heard all the euphemisms, right? And basically a jellyfish nature. Because most everybody has figured out by now that the so-called enthusiasm you see in most of the ahem, corporate workplace is nothing but show. And that once artifice and inauthenticity 
have replaced competence. Pretty soon, everybody but the most incompetent figure out that, uh, well, they're all lying anyway. Number four, the competent must cover for the incompetent, and that's a burden on the actually competent. As the competent, he says, tire of the artifice and the make work and finally quit, the remaining few competent must work ever harder to keep everything glued together. The commitment to high standards and accountability becomes their undoing. As the slack masters and incompetents either don't care, hey, I'm just there to qualify for my pension, or they've mastered the process of masking their own incompetence, often by blaming the competent or the innocent. And how many times have we seen this, folks? It was a truism in the corporate workplace years ago. Now it's simply rubbing salt in the wound. Well, the result, says the author, is a vicious circle. It crushes the remaining few competent who then burn out and quit themselves. Either that or they go on disability or otherwise opt out. They change their lifestyle to get by on far less income, work responsibility, less exposure to the toxic work environment created by depersonalization, politicization, and the elevation of the incompetent. Finally, number five, as the competent leadership leaves, the incompetent take the reins, blind to their own incompetence. It was called the Peter Principle decades ago. But it's the same old story. It all looked so easy when competent people were at the helm. But reality is, in fact, a cruel taskmaster. And all the excuses that work as an underling, once the competent have left and the incompetent have the reins, pretty much means the buck no longer stops anywhere. <laughs> the buck may even elude the entire organization. And so we reach what Charles Hugh Smith calls the terminal stage, where the competent have been driven out, quit, or burned out, and only the incompetent or the slack masters are left, and the toxic work environment has now been institutionalized to the point where no competent individual even wants to bother applying for a job there, much less take a job doomed to, yeah, what they can already see as burnout and failure which is why systems are now breaking down before our eyes and why the breakdowns will ultimately spread with alarming rapidity due to the tightly bound structure of complex systems, even as they self-destruct. Ever seen an engine tear itself apart at highway speeds, folks? Well, that's what we're watching in the U.S. and indeed world economy. This next story is, in fact, pretty sensitive. It's one of those topics that, while we certainly need to talk about it, does tend to tread on certain sensitivities, even among those of us who basically see through the BS and say, hey, I don't want to have anything to do with this racism masquerading as tolerance. But it's important we at least address the issues. This piece comes from American Greatness, courtesy of one of my increasingly favorite columnists, Victor Davis Hansen who writes about the strange pandemic, and uh, he didn't put it that way, but I think it's appropriate here, too, of white disparagement. And he begins by noting that one of the tenets, back when there was an early civil rights movement about 65 years ago, was the ending of racial stereotyping, when Martin Luther King Jr. called for emphasizing the content of our character over the color of our skin. The subtext was basically, stop judging people as a faceless collective on the base of their superficial appearance or skin color, and instead, look at them as individuals with unique characters. So it's tragic, he says, that King's plea for an integrated, assimilated society in which race became only incidental but not essential to our personas, has now been pretty much abandoned by the communist totalitarian left in favor of exactly what they claim to abhor, racial stereotyping, collective guilting, and scapegoating by race and by gender and by gender preference and just about anything else that now meets their uh, leftist agenda. Indeed, many of the things that they claim to have hated out of the old so-called Confederate pathologies, like segregation, 
obsession with genealogy, racial essence, and so forth, have now been rehabilitated by the woke activists. And in that larger landscape, the collective adjective and noun, take your pick, white, has also been redefined and mainstreamed as a perjurative to the point where it's become banal. White has been followed by a string of subsequent oppressive nouns, white rage, white supremacy, white privilege. It's become kind of a twitch on campus. Diversity, equity, inclusion, deans and provosts simply can't write a memo, he notes, issue a communique or sign a directive without some kind of a reference to white something or other. So like the mysterious omnipresence of transgenderism and anything tranny in popular culture, all of a sudden, the obsession with whites as a satanic collective has become a national fad, like a pet rock, or a hula hoop-like collective madness. Yet still, such an addiction remains bizarre in a variety of ways, because millions in the present are now to be labeled as oppressors by the contemporary self-described oppressed... <laughs> Gee, maybe that's changed. Supposedly for what some whites, now long dead, once did to other, mostly now dead, non-whites. But what, he asks, does white really even mean anymore? Is it an adjective or a noun indicating color or culture or race or ethnicity? Is white defined as, well, three quarters, one half, or one quarter, paleness? How much white does it take to be an object of scorn? Is there an overarching state of mind that encompasses both the Duck Dynasty and the West Wing? Certainly in a multiracial intermarried nation with 50 million residents that haven't even been born in America anymore, now taking over, that term is a construct that can mean pretty much anything and thus pretty much nothing at all. Hispanics, for example, are often lumped in with other marginalized people as part of the vast diversity coalition. Yet, notes Victor Davis Hansen, most Latinos are simply indistinguishable from Arab Italian, Greek, or Portuguese hyphenated Americans, who in turn are all usually considered part of the uh, white majority. Does an accent mark or a trilled R transmogrify a once blue-eyed Argentinian American into the preferred non-white diversity collective? Yeah, these are important questions if you uh, want to marginalize people based on things that really can't even be quantified accurately anymore. Well, at least not if you want to be even remotely objective, and that's part of the point here, folks. They don't. In our crazy, racialized, categorized society, if George Zimmerman had simply adopted his maternal surname of Mesa instead and Hispanicized George to maybe Jorge, well, then a guy named Jorge Mesa might not have been so easily demonized into what the New York Times learned as a white Hispanic following his deadly confrontation with Obama's uh, adopted son, you know the name, Trayvon Martin, back in 2012. And hey, folks, that reminds me, Obama himself is half white, and he pretends to be half straight, so why doesn't he merit the collectivist scorn? Ah, unless it's ideology that really trumps even skin color. Oh yeah, and there's this, notes Hansen, that controversial city of New York firebrand and graduation speaker, the racist, and I put that word in there, Fatima Musa Mohammed, recently railed against everything that built this country, especially capitalism. Oh, yeah, and let's not forget, when it comes to the ever-popular new demonization, anyway, white supremacy. Yet, says the piece, she herself is pretty much whiter than white. She's now an elite with a law degree, but is she the beneficiary of white privilege? Or do her radical racial politics trump her skin color and earn her an exemption? How about a snarly, divisive, senile Joe Biden barking at the moon about ultra-mega and semi-fascist white monsters? 
Is he then not a purveyor and beneficiary of white supremacy himself? Well, of course, as long as he gets his 10% cut off the top, maybe he doesn't really care. But all of this by virtue of his woke politics? Says the author, I know a lot of white mechanics, forklift drivers, and assembly workers. I've never heard one of them employ Biden's racial put-downs like boy or junkie. And he asked, do they enjoy white privilege in some way that the Biden family consortium does not? Despite Joe's past fulsome praise of iconic segregationists or his corn pop fables of black youth petting the hairs on his suntanned golden white legs, or maybe hunters taboos about dating Asian women? Then there's the Views, Sonny Hostin, who's created kind of a mini-career in imaging all the ways she can smear white women as demonic. And Harry puts a couple of quotes in, like, white women in particular want to protect this patriarchy. Ooh, she added several nasty words all in one sentence there. And she thinks up new Hitlerian gas metaphors of dehumanization, such as white women resembling, quote, roaches voting for raid. And when the left media wants to attack black conservatives, people like Larry Elder, well, now it can call them white supremacists. His color doesn't really matter, does it? When they wish to warp the news for their woke agendas, they assure us that a Latino mass murderer was, in fact, a white supremacist. And then, in truly Pavlovian fashion, academics follow with essays assuring us that their research proves that, yes, Hispanics, too, can be white supremacists. Up until, of course, they get indoctrinated at a proper left-wing university of higher indoctrination. Almost like a leftist non-degree, then trumps your evil skin color. Continues Victor Davis Hanson, this creation of false racial identities is an accurate touchstone of a perceived collective racialized privileged. Because passing for white back in the racist days of, back in the racist days of Jim Crow may have reflected a means of escaping racist segregation and discrimination for blacks. But now, the increasing trend of whites seeking to pass for non-whites, you know the names, Focahontas, Elizabeth Warren, Ward Churchill, Rachel Dolezal, all reflect instead a self-interested and even careerist assessment that being non-white and having that status is now advantageous. In college admissions, he asked this question, are applicants more likely to try to massage a non-white or a white identity for the perceived advantage? Has the racist ossified one-drop rule? Has the racist ossified one-drop rule or the one-sixteenth genealogy now been rebooted as helpful proof that you are non-white or at least have non-white heritage? Thus, says Hansen, we come to the absurdity of lumping together some 330 million diverse Americans with ancestries that are often even quite antithetical to one another. Serbians with Albanians, Turks and Armenians, Israelis and Syrians, Germans and French. Are all of these ancient antagonists now reduced to white automatons of some kind of a sinister collective Borg? Arrive as an immigrant from Hungary or Estonia, and presto, you're now culpable for creating supposed monsters of the past, like Thomas Jefferson, or maybe George Washington, all of whose statues must be toppled or defaced. Better if you arrive on that same day from somewhere suitably south of the border, well, you can be exempt from such repertory burdens.
It's immigration, though, says Victor Davis Hanson, that reflects realities on the ground, because millions of immigrants instinctively vote with their feet. And while we're told that the entire U.S. population currently is something like 67 to maybe 70 percent white, and therefore deserving of contempt, yearly immigration, legal and illegal, seems to total up to 90 percent non-white. So how is that paradox possible, he asks, because given loud global warnings about white rage and white supremacy, why would millions upon millions of non-whites risk their lives to reach a country where at least the propaganda tells us that they are assured of being subservient to white privilege. Unless, of course, they can see through the lies while Americans continue to drink the Bud Light. Or maybe you could say the obvious communist reality trumps the propaganda. But still, says Victor Davis Hanson, it begs the question, does the average white mechanic in Provo, Utah, now supposedly think like the Pelosi family? Because aren't they all white? Now here, folks, I guess I could say your host can answer that, because if the Pelosi family were really white, they wouldn't be above the law now, would they? Hansen asked it this way. Are Barack Obama's bitter clingers, Hillary Clinton's deplorables and irredeemables, and the Biden Fuhrer's semi-fascists, ultra-magas, dregs, and chumps? Are they all of the same mentality? Do they share these same values as those embraced by Hunter Biden, Jane Fonda, and Adam Schiff for brains by virtue of some mystical bond of whiteness? And when he puts it that way, I think I can answer the question. Obviously, what's at play here is that the word white no longer merely means a skin color, or even the old television engineer's definition of all the primary colors mixed together. White simply means not rainbow. And uh, once upon a time, it would have meant not red, back when red was associated with communism, as opposed to what the waste media did, and try to invert that and turn it into blue states that were now associated with communism. And I guess in that sense, red has become the new white. Hansen wraps up by asking what data supports the charge of imperial whiteness. Do whites commit hate crimes in greater numbers than their demographics? No, they're underrepresented, probably by a factor of 10. And they don't send non-whites to die in foreign wars in their place. In fact, white males in Iraq and Afghanistan died at twice their population-represented rate. Oh yeah, and let's not even talk about professional sports, much less university admissions or even their suicide rate. But at least that last one is easily explainable nowadays, isn't it? Maybe he suggests it's time to look at what retrosegregation has accomplished, because we're headed right over the cliff into Yugoslavia. Bottom line, folks, we're at a really interesting place where it's certainly true anymore that you just plain can't judge people by their skin color. But if you want to hate them because they're white, and it no longer even applies to skin color, why, that kind of racism is not only okay, it's institutionally supported. All of which reminds me of an old joke I used to hear as a kid. It was tasteless, but that at least fits here. Beauty is only skin deep. It went, but ugly goes clear to the bone. Well, now, folks, we have an update on that. Remember when black was beautiful? Well, obviously, now white isn't. But more than that, skin color is only skin deep. But white goes clear to the bone. I guess you could put it this way. There's something really wrong when a once-sick children's joke becomes official government policy. As for the rest of us, I guess it's just one more example of an attitude that reflects an anti-scriptural religion that sure as hell, pun intended, isn't even remotely American.